Innovate UK KTN, connecting for positive change. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode seven of the UK KTN Geo for Earth podcast series. I'm Dallas Campbell, one of your presenters. I'm a science and technology television presenter. And I'm Susie Imber, a space physicist, and we'll be with you throughout this series, chatting with some of the finest minds with all topics related to climate change. Okay, right. In this episode, we have got Paul Campion from TRL. And Andreas Zachariah, Travel AI. And this is episode seven. We're chatting about how we can best green the transport sector and what role geospatial data plays in this. Hope you enjoyed the series. Hope it gives you lots of food for thought, lots of things to think about. Hope it's getting your brain fizzing. Enjoy this episode. I'm so excited about this conversation. We've got two really, really, really three times interesting guests on today. Yeah, we've got uh, Paul Campion from TRL and uh, Zach from Travel AI. And so I guess the first thing we'll ask them to do is just introduce themselves and find out a little bit about them and their background. And why don't we start with Paul? Well, hello. Thank you. Um, Paul Campion. I'm the CEO of TRL. Um, It turns out that not everyone's heard of TRL. Who are TRL? You guys have been going forever and I've never heard of you. Not quite forever, but it was the day after forever uh, that we got started. (laughs) We've been going 89 years and uh, uh, look, part of the thing is the name changed a couple of times. It started as the government's road research laboratory in 1933. I I think the road research laboratory in 1933 always sounds a bit like a a, a second, you know, a a Busby Berkeley B movie to me. But um, uh, anyway, it's it's always been focused on the future and I, I... you know, there's a lot of interesting history to talk about that, but I don't really want to. Uh, the, 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 the claim to fame, which I most enjoy, is the fact that Tyrell invented the zebra crossing. Because before someone told me that, I suppose I thought the zebra crossings had crawled from a swamp with gills or, uh, or I'd have been handed down on a mountain on some tablets. It never occurred to me that someone actually invented it. But I, it, it's quite, a, as well as being a sort of a fun thing, Actually, I think it's quite revealing and interesting about the way that transport becomes just a totally taken for granted part of our lives. I'm sure we'll come back to this uh, in the conversation because that conscious, deliberate thought which said, how can we help pedestrians to stop getting sacrificed to the motor car, uh, which was done in the 1950s, actually, um, is a perfect example of the incremental but at the same time actually quite radical uh, uh, invention that we continue to need to do to meet the challenges of decarbonisation, levelling up, any other things that you, you can think of that we need to do. I'm just amazed that in the 1930s they were thinking about things like zebra crossings. Like, were there that many cars? Well, actually, in, zebra crossings in the 1950s. But, but in 19... Yeah, in the 1930s, they were thinking about really fundamental things like how do you design roads? The UK has got one of the safest road systems in the UK, and that isn't actually because UK drivers are sort of fundamentally better or indeed, perhaps as we like to think, more polite or more respectful than other countries. Absolutely not the truth. It's because our roads are designed better. And, you know, the, the, the environment that people find themselves in, the road furniture, the signage, the, the, the literal layout of the road, how tight corners are, how things merge into that. These have really, really deep, important uh, impacts on our ability to use them safely. That's the sort of thinking that TRL was doing in the 1930s. Of course, the world's moved on a lot, but we still care about the same problems. We approach them differently. 
I sorry, we're going to have to do a whole other podcast just on road psychology because you know the thing that I don't understand just really quickly is that like when they were originally designing road layouts, whose idea was it to say, okay, you've got cars coming in opposite directions, these sort of two-ton automobiles, bits of metal coming towards each other at sort of 50 miles an hour. I know what will separate them, a white line. Well, uh, of course, originally there weren't. Someone had to invent the white line. And and, and worse than that, when motorways were being deployed for the first time in the UK, you know, the the famous Preston Bypass in the 1960s, very late for the 50s, 60s, there, was, there were no central barriers, so never mind 50 miles an hour. Cars were approaching each other at 70 miles an hour, closing speed of 140 miles an hour. And actually, it's worse than that, because when motorways were first introduced, there was no speed limit. Now, the cars weren't, didn't go as fast as they do today, but it's, it's literally true that you could drive as fast as your car would go, uh, and there'd be someone driving as fast as their car could go, uh, and there'd be nothing physical separating you at all in those days. And you know what? They learnt. And so what we call, what people, we casually call crash barriers, which are more, you know, more properly called vehicle restraint, you know, it's the technical term, um, is all about making sure that on a motorway, you can't hit someone else coming at 140. You could, you could conceivably hit them going at 70, which is honestly bad enough, but not 140. And, and that's exactly the sort of innovation that has saved countless lives. Motorways, of course, absolutely the safest roads you can drive on. And one of the ways is because the safety is engineered in. Wow. My dad always had a good safety idea for cars. Sorry, I'm going to go off on a tangent. Prevent me from going off in tangents. He always said, right, basically what you want to do is on the steering wheel, you want to weld on a big metal spike. And then that way, everyone will be really careful how they drive. Well, well we're going to spend the whole, whole podcast on the history of transport if you're not careful. Because actually, in the, ni- in the 1960s, there was a guy called Ralph Nader in the US. Yeah, well, Ralph Nader, the, he's the politician guy yeah we he didn't he invent the seatbelt he did and he put that because essentially you didn't need to weld one on that's how a steering column worked because the cheap way to engineer a steering column is a piece of metal that goes from the roundy thing you know to a to a cog and when you hit something that piece of metal would tend to go straight through you so you can engineer it to be safer you know you have it in two sections which is how it is now right but you don't need to put a spike on once upon a time, that's literally and exactly how it was. You were driving in front of a big spike, and if you hit something, that spike would have an have an effect. So again, you know, the 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 the, the engineering that goes into the safety um, has taken decades and decades and decades and decades. Oh, it's so fascinating, though. I mean, interesting to hear about the history and how much the design has changed over the years and how much consideration and thought's been put into it. But yeah, today we're going to focus on what's happening now and what we're looking forward to. And I guess it's a good chance now to have a chat uh, with Zach and find out a bit about his history and interest. Hello and good afternoon. So, yes, I'm, I'm Zach. I'm CEO and co-founder of Travel AI and EV Series, and we are potentially future looking or forward looking because we're in the business of using uh, technology and generating data uh, to, to solve uh, address problems uh, around transport. I, I lead a beautiful team of engineers and problem solvers. And yeah, we've been at the strange intersection of, of trying to uh, make it more sustainable, uh, make it better understood um, and, and present a sort of bottom up uh, view of the world. Um, and I am the yes, I am the, the the son of a stewardess and a, and a pilot, 
But prior to that, I was uh, a prop trader um, in, in banking and my heart and soul are an engineer. Ah, so data, data is your thing. But tell me a bit about the kind of transport that you were looking at. Is it is it me in my car? Is it me on a bus? Is it is it a mixture of public and private? I think the best way to describe it is is to be able to tell the story of you and, and pretty much anyone else. So to be agnostic about whether it was public transit or private, whether it was a car or a bike, if you were walking, it, it was just, it, it's just a case of trying to tell that that story from kind of holistic perspective uh, to, and, and to be agnostic about whether it's in London or whether it's in another part of the world. Uh, because, yeah, these days, you know, we have that freedom to move around as we please. Great, both. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. Both of you are concerned with transformation and, and, and the great problem is how do we make transport green and more efficient, uh, more integrated? So I, perhaps this is a question to both of you. Can you just sort of give us a, a brief overview of the, kind of the state of the problem, if you like? Who are the worst offenders? Which bit of the transport sectors need radical overhaul? Uh, you want us to name names, eh? Uh, I want name <coughs> names. But well, let, let's start at the top, okay? Um, <clears throat> no surprise to anyone that we have got a climate crisis on our hands. It's man-made. It's to do with emissions, and I'm sure most people know that transport as a sector is the single largest emitting sector. Uh, so you know, there you go. There's a there's a, a mandate for change right there. Um, I, I actually think there's an an equally important, though potentially less uh, existential challenge, which today in the UK is called levelling up. But you know this isn't this isn't unique to the UK, and it's it, it, we could use lots of different uh, phrases for it. But it is the problem of inequality. Transport inequality is uh, is holding a lot of people back, therefore holding us back as a society as an economy. And I think those two forcing functions, decarbonisation and levelling up, uh, mean we've got a non-negotiable uh, deadline to get stuff done. Now, the good news is, and this maybe is where I, uh, 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 you know, we collaborate with Zach and, and, and Zach's um, taking the lead, is that at the same time, we have opportunities, we have enablers, particularly from technology. And, you know, my, my background uh, is from IT, data, digitalization, like Zach. I'm sure we both have a common view that digitalization is a critical component of the toolkit that we've got to solve this stuff. So the good news is we've got a, you know, uh, we've got tools that we can work with, even though the challenge in front of us looks um, pretty astronomical. Yeah, interesting. Zach, what do you want to sort of add on the, on the topic of, of the challenges and, and the need to transform the sector? Well, I think the um, mobility and the opportunities it affords uh, anyone in society cannot be underestimated. So it, it's how easy can someone get to that job opportunity? How accessible is it? How, how, you know, how much effort is getting to that school? Maybe that better um uh, <laughs> the, the school with the better stats uh what happens when you have an area around a city where because the transport is bad the house prices are lower so one of the things that struck me as very interesting living in london for the last few decades is what happened when the overground became a sort of pseudo uh, south and north circular and bits started to connect up and there were pockets of london that until then were out of reach of public transit but creating that 
those connection points, creating more accessibility opportunities in terms of paths that you could take to get inwards, then opened up those areas. And also the other way of thinking is it where there is privilege in terms of the kind of access that you get or there, uh, what it can do is it can take the, the, the pressure off that. And what I mean by pressure is the people who want to go there, the people who create that real estate pressure. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, it's a very neat equalizing force at a, at a much larger scale when you look at house prices, as much as it is an enabler about you know, offering you or presenting you with more opportunities. That's really, I mean, that's very clear how how transport affects inequality. Um, but how, do, how does that then link up to environmental issues as well? Um, I think at first blush, I would say, because the change in the environment, um, air pollution, um, all of these things affect all of us. Um, it's, it's not really possible. That, OK, yes, there are pockets where you can say it's localised. You know, pollution tends to be higher around city spaces. Uh, but in real terms, we're, we're all impacted by it. And the benefits of decarbonising, the benefits of going greener. And also, in essence, decarbonising transport will almost without question be primarily driven by electrification. Um, you know, that's the other great thing. Um, uh, so there are a lot of gains that many people can be impacted by and, and that they can enjoy because it's easy to also forget air pollution. Um, you know, they, they, they say that in London alone, uh, the numbers could be as high as something like 20,000 people a year are uh, very seriously impacted by the air quality. So, Zach, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not quite going to disagree with you, but I'm going to sharpen maybe some of those points because... Um, I think there's quite a lot of evidence that the impacts, you mentioned pollution, uh, the impacts of pollution, the impacts of climate change bear down particularly hard on the less advantaged. So I think these two things actually align. And uh, if we just solve decarbonisation, particularly if we said the answer is just electric vehicles, then we will make, we will make inequality worse, not better. Right. We, we, we know that electric vehicles at the moment, that's not going to change overnight, are just more expensive than uh, uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. That means it's if we, you know, the faster we force electrification of the fleet, the more burdens we're imposing on the less well off. And oh, by the way, electric vehicles create a ton of nanoparticulates anyway. There's uh, you know, brake dust, there's uh, tyre dust, da, da, da. So, so we all think of diesel soot as being you know, the, the, the big issue, which is, it is a big issue, but it's by no means the only one. So uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, yes, we, we will all bear the impacts of climate change, but you, know, it, you don't have to think too hard to recognise of the 7 billion people on the planet, there's a billion or 2 billion who are really, you know, who, who are get, who are going to literally die or have their life chances dramatically changed by climate change over the next few decades. Whereas the likes of us, the global one percent, you know, we're going to have to make some adjustments. Maybe life isn't going to be quite as pleasant as we thought it was going to be, but we'll be okay. So you know, there's a, that fundamental inequality I think lines up across these two dimensions. I mean, just to, to follow up, when I talk about electrification, that's not just exclusive to, to road transport, because when you look at the table for electrification and, and, and to the railways around Europe, uh, you would find that the UK would be ranked number 26 in terms of its electrification of its railways. 
the type of diesel that is used in the rail space is pretty, pretty damn ugly. Um, so you, you take that into account and then you also look at, for instance, I don't think many people realize that the percentage of the Indian railway network that is electrified is higher than the percentage of the UK railway network. And that's a pretty astounding fact for, you know, the, the, the nation that one could say birthed the, the, the steam railways. Um, and, you know, when I was talking about, you know, cities and urban environments, it, yes, we know, because you tend to find disadvantaged communities primarily in greater concentration in, in cities. So it's, uh, you know, electrification and EVs are, are not the, the silver bullet. There is a much larger opportunity around electrifying all of transport. Um, and, uh, you know, the way we look at public transit, especially because if you look at the unit of energy when you're converting it into kinetic energy, um, and the efficiency gains that you have with, with, for instance, electrification, those could be potentially savings that you then pass on in the public transit sphere to the public transit user. Um, and just on the final thing uh, with the particulates, uh, typically newer EVs have regenerative braking. The regenerative braking mechanism doesn't have brake discs. It's a closed system, so you don't get particulates. It's older EVs that still use, uh, you know, an ice style disc brake, which then creates the particulates. But it, in real terms, yeah, regenerative braking doesn't uh, 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 generate particulates. That's true, and we shouldn't we shouldn't argue over detail. There's still there's still tired us, you know. There's no zero, but but look, you, you, there's a there's a huge amount of uh, truth in what you say, Zach. But do, do you mind if I just expand the lens just slightly here, that because it's very easy in debates about transport to do two things. First of all, to think about personal mobility, yeah? and and then, by the way, to think about getting to work as sort of being the thing. But the largest uh, category of trips in the UK is actually leisure outings, not going to work at all. Uh, there are several segments of transport use for personal mobility that are more important than commuting to work. But actually, more fundamentally than that, if we ignore freight, then we're ignoring the bit that's growing. So over two or three decades, there's been a trend towards people making fewer trips. Personal mobility in a, on, at the per-person level has been declining. The population has been growing, blah, 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 blah. But, but your people are, are making fewer trips. And we can imagine why that might be. It might be the ability to do meetings like this. It might be the ability to do internet shopping. And all sorts of reasons why you know, um, um, uh, personal trips might have been declining. Freight is going up. Because you know if I do that internet shopping, it's still got to move around on or near to the Earth's surface to get to me. And so, you know, if we if, if we think about the problem as not just being personal mobility, being freight, uh, then then we get a fuller picture. Transport professionals are very fond of saying, well, transport is a derived demand, not an economist's phrase, meaning that no one travels for the sake of it. First order approximation anyway. Well, you don't travel just for the hell of it. You travel to go and see your mum, to get your kids to school, to go shopping, to go to work, to go to the cinema, to go to the pub, to go and see a mate, whatever it is, you're, you're travelling for a reason. And, of course, that's true, but we could take it even one step further back, couldn't we? Because the travel choices that I make and the, the, the freight demand that I create because of the purchases I make, you know, the clothes I wear, everything you buy has got, what, 10% of its value is embedded transport. These are constrained by the society we live in, by the built environment. You know, I live where I live, my work's where, where my work is, my children's school is where my children's school is, my shops are where my shops are. 
there's actually quite a limited ability I've got once I've put myself in that uh, network to dramatically shift my travel behaviour, either direct or, 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 or induced, isn't that? I mean, I, on the margin, I can do some things. I can do some things. Clearly, I can buy an electric vehicle. Clearly, I can cycle instead of uh, take the bus. You know, there's some things I can do on the margin, but fundamentally, those choices are built in to the city or the town or the you know the place I live. And so we have a really long time cycle that we have to think about, as well as the short-term choices that we often focus on. So I'm sorry if that's actually sort of exploded the conversation too big Not to at be all, useful. No, no, no. It, it's very, it's it, incredibly important context, I think. It's a really good context, but it's a good point, actually, to, to talk about solutions. And particularly, you know, Paul, you talked about how technology can free us from, from some of these problems. Yeah, I was going to ask Zach, actually, a little bit about how geospatial data underpins the transport network because you, you have a company that's sort of specialised in analysing data around movements and I think Paul's thrown open the door to us to have a much broader conversation. I'm just interested in, in the data side of things from you, Zach. Yeah, so uh, for instance, let's let's take a little example. Um, sometimes you see adverts on television. Well, if you see an advert for a cosmetic product on television, uh, one of the things I find quite amazing is there'll be in very small print. It'll say, OK, this is a survey of 57 people. And, you know, they will have spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions on their advertising campaign and they'll have tiny sample sizes. And one of the extraordinary things that, that, that amazed me when I came into the transport space and I started to see how data is collected um, and who has it is that something as foundational as the national uh, travel survey or in other countries it's called the, the household survey um, the sample sizes are very precise they are designed to get a cross-section of groups in in different parts of the country across a 52-week period but if you take 8,000 household surveys or up to 10,000 um, uh, for uh, the, the DFT and you take them across 52 weeks and all the different regions, what you actually end up with are one week samples uh, that are actually quite small. And really what's much more interesting, surely, especially in somewhere like the UK where our temperature varies much more, is to tell the story of the individual across seasonalities, across weather temperatures, across weather situations, across different because the other thing with something like a, a, a household survey or a travel survey is it, it's um, uh, the user puts the data into a survey. Um, and so it, it's very different to when you kind of autonomously pull it in. But of course, then there are other sources like you, you look at something like the, the Oyster Card system um, and it has an incredible view of all of its Oyster card users tapping into the tube and the bus. Um, uh, paradoxically, of course, it, it can't really know when you get into a car and you drive around, even though in London, the AMPR, which is the Automatic Number Plate Recognition System, will pick you up and try and track you. And, you know, if you're speeding, uh, uh, send you a ticket or if you've gone into the wrong zone and you haven't paid for it, you know, remind you that you need to pay. So it's it's a it's a system that then sits uh, within its, its own silo. Um, and, and to some degree, what also surprised me was the discovery that even within uh, the UK, the different train operators view of their own customers is siloed. It is incomplete. If you are a major train operator servicing lines into London, once your traveller arrives into central London into TfL's fiefdom, you no longer see them. You no longer get to find out anything about how they use the system. And so that is even more extraordinary in a world where you're using a paper-based season card. 
So, you know, to use an analogy, you go to Las Vegas and the favorite customer of any casino is the whale and the whale turns up and they get the they get the player suite and everything because they're more likely to to put money into the casino well a season ticket holder is a whale for the transport space there are very few um services that you or i buy where we will pay 12 months upfront for that service we're now accustomed to paying on a monthly rolling basis and and you know it might be one month in advance but 12 months in advance um and so it's an extraordinary privilege in some sense or how the system works that it has this but it's also a strange dichotomy or paradox that they then have so little about these customers um and you know what or how we might travel on the weekend what other forms of transport we use to get point to point these end up being mysteries um and and you know that's again that's that strikes one as being uh a missed opportunity because um i i think part of the solution of a greener and more de decarbonized uh, transport system is one not where we turn up and uh, we fi we figure out how we get and the system has been designed how it wants but it's a system that's much more sympathetic it takes a joined up view and understands what may have happened before or after so, for instance, I, I lived, um, uh, thanks to uh, working with the European Space Agency, I, I spent almost two years living in Holland. Um, and so there, on an annual basis, they put together the train timetable, understanding the flow between different stations to the point where there are certain stations which they know are interchanges. They will make sure that a train where they know people are getting off at this station and more likely to switch to another train to go to another destination, they run them on the on the on the um, uh, on the platforms next to each other. So people just walk a few meters, and they even allow the driver the discretion to hold back his train a few minutes in case the other one is running late. And and that's just a, an extraordinarily joined up way of thinking of the world when you're planning something like you know. Uh, the, the train system in, in, in the Netherlands, you know, notwithstanding how wonderful it is to be a cyclist there as well. Which <laughs> it sounds so logical, you know. <clears throat> what you're describing sounds so logical. I I'm guess. a London I'm a London cyclist and it's, it's a hellscape. <laughs> so what Zach says, absolutely, that, that's actually an example of the £10 voucher you get if you are a participant in the National Travel Survey. Paul, okay. just, you, Paul's holding something up to the camera. Yeah, so there is, you go. It, it's a £10 voucher. So I've been paid for my data to enter the National Travel Survey. Look, I think what... what oh, there you go. There you I, go. Tell you, I tell you what I'd like to do. I tell you what... Just, just, I just want to pause for a second here. So basically, you know, the upshot is we now have a lot of data, which means we can plan better, we can be much more joined up in our thinking. How does that then convert to being well, more it, 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 it's greener? Actually, I think, I think if, we, if, we, if we answer your question, we can make a huge amount of progress. I think there's a different question we can ask, which potentially unlocks even more. Think of it this way. Since the Big Bang, until roughly last Thursday, no one knew where anything was or where it wanted to go to. And our travel, our entire transport, our cities, our life, everything, everything, everything is, is, has been designed on the basis that you don't know where stuff is. And we've invented technology on the ways to make up for that. So a timetable and a bus stop are pieces of technology that enable you to coincide in time and place with a means of transport. But you have to do that. You have to arrange to be at this place at this time because you don't know where stuff is. Now, 
because the technology that we now have, the fact that we've all instrumented ourselves, we're all carrying around mobile phones, everything that moves now is, is, is essentially GPS tracked, connected to the network. For the first time in the universe's history, we know stuff, know stuff where, uh, where stuff is, and a lot of it, we know where it's going. I mean, my diary on my mobile phone tells me wh where I'm going to be for the next few weeks, right? That's available. So, so, so people know, could know, what journeys I'm going to make, right? The, the supply chains for the... We, we know stuff. What we haven't yet done is rethink the design of cities, our society, everything else, to reflect that new reality, because it's only happened last Thursday, maybe the day before. But it's, it's intensely recent, and, and it enables us to rethink things from the bottom up. So the examples that gave are fantastic examples of making the current system better. I'm more ambitious. I want a, I want a new system. We've got a bit of a catch-up problem then. As technology gets better and better, the, the, uh, the way that we design, the way that we manufacture things has to ca catch up. Paul, you know, we were talking about how much we hate airport design just before we were started recording. Is something like this going to affect things like the way that we build airports and make them less horrific? And Well, again, the, the, the airport is based on the assumption that even though we know the names of the people who are going to be on the flight and where they're going to, uh, you've got no ability to predict what's going to be where. So we keep we have the, 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 the fundamental design point behind any piece of transport is you design for peak demand. Right. Why we design for peak demand instead of de de uh, being able to predict now what the demand will be and designing for the actual demand. Let me take a different example. Let's take uh, let's take the road system. The road system is designed for peak demand, right? It's the, it used to be. It isn't anymore since the uh, pandemic. But it used to be the nine o'clock Monday morning rush. OK. And if that was congested, you would create a spreadsheet that said, if I can save everyone 10 minutes time, then it's, I'm justified in spending a billion pounds on building a new road. That's basically you know, what we used to do. Uh, but actually, why can't we use our knowledge of what needs to go where and our knowledge of psychology build economic technical systems to incent people, reward people, help people, advise people to use the thing differently? Rather than building new roads, we could actually begin to think about how to use the 25% of the road capacity that's completely idle. And I mean the road capacity between midnight and 6 a.m., no one uses it, completely unused. All that capital sitting there unused. Why are lorries clogging up the M1 at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning when 25% of the road network is not used? That's a way of rethinking the system. And actually to do that, we need exactly the sort of technology that Zach's using. But, and we can use it, we can use it to ameliorate what we got or we can use it to build afresh. I think the challenges are so big that we should welcome the opportunity to think super big and, and, and really think about how do we want to live, how do we help people to have flourishing lives, how do we help sort inequality. We've got a completely new toolkit in front of us. Let's stop reaching for the old solutions. That, that sounds you know fascinating to think about the way that we even change people's behaviour. But Zach, I want to talk a little bit with you about data um, because I know that you take data from a whole ton of different sources to try and address some of these issues. Can you tell us a bit more about where your data comes from and how you're using it to change the, the future of the transport system? 
So uh, actually, the, the, the only source we take our data from uh, is right down from the smartphone sensor of an individual. And that then becomes kind of almost the, the, the source of truth or the, the, the origin of the breadcrumbs from which we then try and, and uh, rebuild or try and figure out how it was that they moved around through, through time and space. Um, and, and the opportunity there is then to uh, to take a, an agnostic view of whether they took public transit or private travel or whether they walked or if it was motorized and, and try and get that joined up view uh, of them trying to, to navigate getting getting from from A to B. Um, and, and one of the reasons why we kind of uh, insulated ourselves from other data sources is uh, so that you, you don't you can you can do more around the spectrum of privacy. So, for instance, um, it is our premise from the very beginning that when we generate this data and we've been approached many times by people in the location based services space, so specifically advertising that we will not um, and do not want to ever. <laughs> we practically find it insulting as a team to for this data to work its way into that space because to look at the transport animal the problem the opportunity the beauty of this incredibly important system is to see that that it is better and there's more value in using the data very narrowly to solve the problems around the transport space because if you can you can have that feedback loop and you can show the user how you're solving a problem with their data and you're not abusing it you're not selling it to someone else then that's a proper uh, value proposition um, and, and that's that for us is kind of the, the strange thing, because, of course, today it's the tech companies, you know, they've carved up their universe. They've almost exhausted tech services. And so what they're now doing is they're looking at other verticals and those verticals are health, their finance and their mobility. And the people who know the most about how we use mobility systems are first Google head and shoulders. Uh, then you would say second um, Apple. Um, and then you, you might have a, an arm wrestle between the likes of kind of Amazon or Facebook. I'll probably put Facebook above, uh, really. Um, and they are picking off data points from the apps that we use and the services that we use. The, 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 the value for them is if you look at someone like Google and they're running Waymo, which is an autonomous vehicle service, which has been built up over years. When they decide to launch Waymo, they will know which city to launch it and where it will be most successful and serve a need greatest because they understand the need of the customer. And, and that, from our point of view, as someone or as a, as, a, as a group of people who enjoy technology and data, has for us been the hardest bit of the translation uh, or the education equation when interacting with the transport space, which is that you can and you should get closer to your customer because in doing so, you will solve their need and you will build up a relationship that moves from being a hostage situation to one that is a, is a, is a genuine you know, provider and customer situation. Um, so right now, yeah, the people who have the most data are the ones who are perhaps thinking how it is that they can enter the space. And it's a shame that the people who are actually providing the services and who could do the most with it and make the biggest impact and who are ultimately closest to the customer um, are probably missing that. Brilliant. Hey, I knew this was, sorry, Susie, Karen. No, 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 I knew this was going to happen. We're already over time. And this is the problem when you've got really interesting guests. We should get less interesting guests on. We've only just started. I know, that's, that's the annoying thing. Switch can, the recorders off. We've we got I a lot know, to do more here. I know, we could just, we could just go on and on about this. I'm, I'm really, I'm just sort of slightly... Susie, finish your point then. And then what I'm going to do is, Paul, think about this question. 
Um, I want you to think about 10 years in the future what the transport system is going to look like very, very briefly. But Susie, finish your finish your point. I just I just wanted to ask Zach a little bit more about kind of where his company then sits. We've got these big data companies that are collecting loads of data about us. We've got the people that we interact with daily that don't have access to the data. Zach, are you somewhere in between the two taking the big data, translating it into data products that some of the, the other companies can use, like Transport for London or the road designers? Where do you sit in this space? Well, what we're trying to be is a uh, an advocate, a, a friend from the tech universe who actually wants to work with the providers for, for the express purpose of creating a virtuous circle where this data can feed into a better service, one that's potentially optimized. Maybe it's cheaper to run. Maybe it's made more efficient. Maybe you can even reduce the costs. Um, but, you know, I, I think at the same time, almost to segue to Dallas's question, which is what, what does 10 years begin to look like? Well, I think you'll have a larger component of things being delivered by demand responsive services uh, that that can start to deal with almost like okay what's a what's a core or fundamental level of service uh, and things that need to happen and then like a variation margin um, especially where I, I always feel like uh, rural areas tend to be forgotten because if we look at something like the bus network bus timetabling it's pretty yeah bonkers. you know I couldn't agree How more I live in a rural yeah. place <laughs> so this is Susie's oh, big gripe in life okay. <laughs> it's, it's rural <laughs> <laughs> I know. No one paid me. No one paid me. No one told me. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but you, you're living the dream though, Susie. It's, I live in central London, which is hyper-connected, and I, all I want to do is get out. I live in the Peak District, so it's, it's a different world. But let's Paul, go over to Paul. Yes, okay. Yeah, this is final final point from Paul. Ten years. Tell us the, our, our utopian travel future. Well, look, 10 years is 2032, which is two years after the uh, deadline or a whole bunch of deadlines. I mean, there's a set of deadlines to, um, um, you know, we're going to we're going to stop selling a bunch of uh, obsolete technologies, aren't we? We are going to have, uh, you know, a much bigger proportion of um, uh, decarbonised powertrains and vehicles around the place. In, in one way, it's going to look quite different, It'll be a lot more shiny, you know, vehicles and da da da. In other ways, of course, the road outside my uh, my house or indeed the houses you're speaking from is going to be the same road. Right. The the these much bigger changes in how we plan society how we how people uh, take take a long time to unfold so uh, i'm i'm a techno optimist in the sense that i think the things that zach's doing the things that we're doing things that other companies doing will will provide a whole new set of opportunities um i'm a i'm a political realist uh, in the sense that a lot of the barriers that Zach's talking about, a lot of the barriers that we see day in, day out are not technical barriers. We have the technology to do you know, much better things than we do at the moment. It's like Zach's example of, you know, why don't we schedule the trains to come in on platforms next to each other? The answer is nothing to do with technology, nothing to do with planning. It's to do with incentives. It's to do with economics. It's to do with political priorities. It's to do with uh, the way we organise society. That stuff isn't going to change a lot over 10 years, I'm afraid. But as a technical community, as a technology community, I think we need, we can help to accelerate that. And the way we do that is by helping to tell better stories. 
and we're dreadful in the technology industry uh, and the transport industry for using jargon right we don't talk about trains and buses and things we talk about modes you know bah, 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 the, 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 any any right so the te- the 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 jargon's terrible, terrible, terrible. And we, you know, we allow people to say, uh, you know, oh, what we need is road user charging. I'm sorry, that's dead in the water. Just listen to the name. No one's ever going to buy that thing. We need to tell better stories. And politicians are the storytellers. They're the people we we license in our society to tell stories about better worlds. And we, as a transport and technology community, I think, can, over the next 10 years, get a lot more skillful about helping those people to tell better stories to break down the real barriers, which are not technology, they're not behavioural, they're economic, they're political, they're commercial, it's that gritty stuff. Good stuff. I think that's a good place to end. Talking my language, Paul, thank you very much indeed. And thank you very much to Zach. Okay, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. That was excellent. Thank you very, very much to Paul and to Zach for taking part. Thank you, most of all, for listening. We look forward to your company next time. Don't forget you can get in touch with Luca Badello or Andy Bennett at KTN if you'd like to collaborate with them on any of the topics we've been talking about today. And of course, as always, the link to the publication Net Zero and the Power of Place, which goes alongside this podcast series, can be found in the podcast description. See you next time. Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change.